0: All right, good morning, Vine family. If you want to grab a seat here, I just encourage you to continue these conversations after service. It's a great opportunity to connect with people, encourage each other, pray for each other. Um, If you're new here, my name is Michael. I'm on staff here as a church plant resident. We'll be sent out in the, the next year or so to see a church started on the east side. And I'm glad to continue just our sermon series in the book of Exodus. And just kind of a quick recap, but last week we were looking at Exodus 23, and just this promise that God gave to his people after he had redeemed them out of slavery in Egypt and brought them through the Red Sea, doing many miracles, providing for them along the way, he promised them that he would send his angel to go before them, to bring them into the land, to fulfill all of his promises. And we saw how that angel was really God himself going before them because he's with his people. He's for his people. And yet we also briefly looked at one little verse there in that chapter 20, verse 21 of chapter 23, where we're told that if, you, if the people disobeyed, there would be no pardon for them, for God's name rested on God's angel that went the way. And so you have a little bit of this tension in terms of God wants to be with his people and go before him, and yet God, being a good God, Being a just God cannot just sweep evil and disobedience and sin under the rug. He wouldn't be a good God if he did that. And so you have a little bit of this this tension. And in fact, this tension is really the oldest problem that humanity's faced. It goes all the way back to our first home in the Garden of Eden, a perfect world, perfect relationship with God. And when our first parents disobeyed, they were thrown out out of relationship with God because to stay there would mean death because rebels cannot stand before a good and holy God and live. And yet at the same time, God gave them them this promise that one day someone would come to restore and make all things right. But what happens in the middle of the story? How can God be with people when people are consistently doing things that cause disobedience, that cause brokenness, and that deserve judgment. That's the tension. That's this root issue. And so God gives an answer actually here in our story of Exodus. In chapter 25, verses 8 and 9, we hear this. Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. God says, look, I'm going to dwell amongst you in this special place, this this tabernacle, this tent, this sanctuary, this this very special house. So much so that you have to build it exactly as I say. And chapters 25 to 30 and chapters 35 to 40 of the book of Exodus, look at the instructions for building it and all that's in it. And then the actual building of it, literally repeated, almost word for word, points. And you have this, this strong emphasis 20 times in those chapters. You hear either the phrase, they built it as the pattern was shown to them, or they did it as the Lord commanded Moses. 20 times. It's important. And I don't know about you, but maybe if you've come across those chapters, maybe like a read through the Bible plan, you start reading and your kind of eyes start to glaze over six cubits, three cubits, blue curtains. And you're like, I don't know, just all details. I can't picture things unless I see it. It's like, I'm just going to glaze over, right? But just think about this with me. In the book of Exodus, 25% of the book talks about building this thing. 25% of the book. In a book that has amazing events like the parting of the Red Sea and the Passover, 25% of the book is devoted to building A building, a tent, a meeting place. Probably pretty important then, isn't it? Even if the details seem hard. And that's because this building wasn't just a building like this one. No, it was a special meeting place for God to dwell with his people. It was to be, so to speak, a small slice of heaven on earth. A small picture of the Garden of Eden brought back God dwelling with his people. Because he didn't just want to save them out of slavery, but he wanted to save them into something, into relationship with him. And yet he's a holy God, and we're not. And so he creates this spot, this this one place for his people back then to meet with him, almost like a safe house in the DMZ between two warring nations, a place they can meet. And so this morning we're going to spend our time looking at Kind of two things. First, the the story of Exodus 24 and God meeting with his people on the mountain and then weaving into that the role of the tabernacle. Because Moses didn't just get the pattern for the tabernacle on the mountain. The mountain is the pattern. It is divided in a similar way to the tabernacle. And so as we look at that and see who God is and who we are in light of him and how we can relate to him or how they were to relate to them back then, then we can ask, how do we today relate to a God who is just as holy today as he was back then? So let's pray and ask God to help us this morning. Father, this morning, we need your help. Your word says that we are but dust, that we are weak and frail, limited minds, And yet, in our weakness, in our limitations, your word says, your grace is sufficient. In fact, you love to work in our weakness, for it shows how awesome you are. And so work with with me, through me, as a weak speaker. Work with all of us as weak listeners to have ears to really hear, to really see what you want us to see. For your glory. Amen. Well, in chapter 24, we start with reading these first two verses. Then he said to Moses, this is God speaking, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, the 70 elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. And right away, and especially at verse 2, you kind of see the structure that's going to lay out the mountain and the tabernacle for us. There's three groups of people. And they relate to God differently. The people are stuck at the bottom of the mountain. Moses and Aaron and other leaders, priests and elders, are able to come up some of the way, but still a distance. And only Moses is allowed to come near to the Lord. This is kind of a three-part division. And we see the same thing in the building of the tabernacle. There was, so to speak, curtains that made a, a big, giant courtyard And the people could enter there to worship, but to actually enter the tent, the tabernacle, was reserved only for the priests. And then inside that tent, there was another curtain leading to the most holy place. And there, only one person, the high priest, on only one day of the year, the Day of Atonement, can enter. And this division creates this sense that the closer you get to God, the more careful you have to be, for he is holy and majestic, and we are not. So let's look at the first layer, the people. Well, in verse 3, we're told that Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules, everything we've been soaking, the Ten Commandments and the laws, and the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Great, we'll sign up for our half of the deal. We'll do it all, which is a great sentiment, except within 40 days of this moment, They are in total rebellion to God. Not even 40 days goes by from this moment. Just like the Garden of Eden, no matter how small the requirements, humanity can never seem to keep up its end of the deal. We can never seem to actually do what's required of us. What's actually right, we fail. Isn't that why God keeps his people at the bottom of the mountain for their safety? Because just as we can't approach the sun in all its purity and majesty and power and live, so sinful people, disobedient people, can't approach God and live on their own. But God wants to be with his people. And so he provides something. In verse 4, we read that Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord, and he rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings. And sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins. And the other half of the blood he threw against the altar. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. See, God is going to enter into this relationship with his people anyways, but he's got to provide something to make them clean, to cover them. And So he provides these sacrifices Burnt offerings were sacrifices of animals that took away guilt. And peace offerings were sacrifices that that restored relationship because God cannot let sin go unpunished. He wouldn't be a good God. And so he offers up these these sacrifices and and the blood is thrown on the people to symbolically show that they have been made clean. They've been set apart to enter this relationship with God. And just imagine with me being there, right? You're, You're in the crowd and the blood is thrown by Moses over the crowd and some of it gets in your hair and on your clothes and you're in the desert. This isn't America, 21st century, you have a nice shower at the end of the day every day, right? Or in the morning. That blood might be on you for days, it might soak into your clothes and become stains that would be there for months until your clothes wear out. And you can imagine you know, a six-year-old running up to you and saying, "Like, what's that stain on your shirt? And you're like, let me tell you, this was the blood that was shed so we could be in relationship with God. And it was meant to be this physical, tangible reminder, this, this ceremony saying that God is going to make them his through blood sacrifice, and it was a reminder of the cost, that if you break this relationship, if you disobey, blood must be spilt. Feel the weight of that? But these animals, they're just like whiteout. Their blood kind of covers over, but whiteout actually doesn't get rid of the problem on the page, it just covers it up a little bit. And they can flake off later. And the people continue in more and more disobedience. And so the tabernacle, one of its main functions, was to continue this process of offering sacrifices. So we read in Exodus 29, verse 38. Now this is what you shall offer on the altar, two lambs a year old day by day regularly. One lamb you shall offer in the morning and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. It shall be a regular Burnt offering throughout your generations at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet with you, to speak to you there. There I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt. I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Hear that repetition of God wanting to be their God? God wanting to dwell with them, and yet... He can't unless there's these sacrifices. Every day, morning and evening, a lamb killed. It's a blood-drained sacrifice to cover guilt. And then he also had all the feasts that they did regularly. And then the times when you might do a particular sin and you'd have to go and offer your own lamb to cover those particular sins. And what we should think about and see and almost smell as we put ourselves in the shoes of God's people then is blood, a lot of it. At the center of the camp, there would almost always be the smell of animals being killed so we could have a relationship with God. Because we can't enter God's presence as a holy God with dirty clothes, clothes made dirty through disobedience and sin, but our clothes don't get cleaned through bleach, they get cleaned by blood. poured out. And you see the weight of this holy God. You see the cost of sin. But don't miss this. You also see his love. Because he gave them this chance. He says, look, I will give you a way to still be in relationship with me. You don't have to die. A lamb can die instead. I'm going to offer this substitute so you can be in relationship with me. But even still, with all this blood being shed, the people are still in the courtyard. They're in relationship with God, but they can only come hang out, so to speak, in the front yard. There's this distance because they need somebody else to go before them, a mediator. So now we hit the second circle. And back in chapter 24, we see in verse 9 that Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and the 70 of the elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. These people are chosen to be representatives of the people. They get to go up, so to speak, into the house And see God. But how do they describe seeing God? There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. What was God like, guys? Tell us about the mountain. Well, let me tell you about the pavement under his feet. But what about God? What did he look like? You you don't get it, guys. We didn't see him. He was too brilliant, too majestic. All we saw were his feet. Like when you're in the middle of the night and it's dark and you're used to you know the night vision kind of thing and you, you walk in the bathroom and you turn on the light and what do you do? You look down. It's too bright. Your eyes can't handle it. And so you look down and it's almost like they see God and they have to just look down and all they can see is the pavement by his feet, so to speak. He's so majestic. And even then, the narrator is to tell us in verse 11 And God did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. Just just in case you're wondering, he actually didn't kill them. And this is because Israelites knew to see God is to risk dying because he's so holy. So he clarifies, you actually, they didn't die. In fact, they got to eat and drink. They, They got to have this meal celebrating that God brought them into a relationship. Just like after a wedding ceremony, you eat this meal celebrating it. So after the people were brought into this relationship symbolically through the covenant, their representatives go up the mountain and eat celebrating on behalf of the people. But even they are left behind. We read in verse 12, The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment, which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God, and he said to the elders, wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and her are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Yet even these guys, that get to go up and see God have to stay far off. Only Moses gets to go up. And yet these guys do get to be this representative for the people, these priests and elders. And that was their job in the tabernacle system too. The priests were to represent the people before God, to go into the holy place and say, we're standing here for the people. So for example, in chapter 25, verse 30, we read that the priests were to set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly, that there was a little table in the tent where bread was laid out, 12 loaves we learn later in Leviticus, one for each tribe, as if they were there in God's presence. And even the very clothes that that the priests wore represented the people. So in 28, verse 12, we read that you shall set the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod, their their garment, as stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel. And Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for remembrance. And then he had a, a breast piece that he wore over it as well. And on that, too, there were stones. We read this a little later down in chapter 28. Next slide. And you shall make a breastpiece of judgment. You shall set in it four rows of stones. There shall be 12 stones with their names according to the names of the sons of Israel. They shall be like signets, each engraved with its name for the 12 tribes. So again, the tribes represented there. And then on top of that, the priest had a, a turban with a gold plate on it. And we read this about the gold plate a little later on in chapter 28. You shall make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it like the engraving of a signet, holy to the Lord. And you shall fasten it on the turban. It shall be on Aaron's forehead, and Aaron shall bear any guilt from the holy things that the people of Israel consecrate as their holy gifts. It shall regularly be on his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord. He's representing the people so they can symbolically stand where they can't on their own but even the priests need cleansing. Even the priests need to be cleansed. And even when the high priest went to the most holy place one day a year, he wore little bells on the hem of his garment so that they could hear him walking around in there. so that if God killed him because he did something wrong, the bells would stop and you would know. And there's a good reason for this. These mediators in the old covenant are imperfect. Aaron himself would be part of the rebellion within these 40 days. Nadab and Abihu, his two sons who are mentioned here, would later die struck down by God for offering improper worship. There's a weight here. We need sacrifice. We need mediators to be in relationship with God, but even the mediators are imperfect. And then we go up another level, third level, into the cloud of glory. We read back in chapter 24, verse 15. Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. This cloud, this devouring fire, well, which is it? Fire or cloud? I think we're wrestling with human images to describe the indescribable. And only Moses is allowed to enter that cloud. And similarly, in the tabernacle, only the high priest could enter the most holy place because the ark was there. this box crafted, overlaid with gold to show purity and value. And we read this about the ark in verses 21 and 22. And you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, this cover they would sprinkle blood on. And in the ark you shall put the testimony, all the laws that I shall give you, and there I will meet with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony. I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. See, the ark was where God's law was. The ark was where the blood was put on the cover of the mercy seats. So Think they could have a relationship with god it was the place where god says he would meet with them this is so to speak the closest we get to eden in the old testament god in a physical location meeting with his people and yet it's at a distance Read that there were two cherubim there on top of the mercy cherubim are these angelic creatures and interestingly the first time they show up is in Genesis three, and their job is to guard people from re-entering the garden. And you get the sense here that if this is a part of Eden restored, the cherubim still stand in the way, guarding it. And like the mountain, this is the place where the cloud of glory dwells. When it's finally built, we read in Exodus 40, these words, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. When it was first set up, the glory presence was so strong there that not even Moses now can enter, as he too is just, at the end of the day, a servant." Do you see the image of God the people of Israel had? Yes, a God who is for them, who loves them, who goes before them, who guides them, but who is also distant in a sense. Only approachable through sacrifice and mediators. A God that you tremble before. that there's a little bit of sense of fearfulness and even awfulness in the old English sense of the word, full of awe. This is holy ground. Tread lightly. Take off your shoes. This is not like the Wizard of Oz. With the Wizard of Oz, it was all spectacle out front, but then you pull back the curtain, and it's just a little man pulling levers. And here it's the exact opposite. Out front, it looks like a normal tent, but you start to go behind the curtains... And even the little bit of glory you see there, which is but a drop in the bucket of God's glory, we can't handle. This is our God. And it should instill a right sense of awe and fear. Not in a scared sense of being afraid, but in the sense of when you stand by Niagara Falls, if you've ever been there, you don't get too close Because if you fall in and you go over, you are not probably coming back out alive. There's this sense of distance and respect. And so we have this tension because over and over again we have God saying, I want to be with you. I want to dwell with you. I want to be near you. And then we read over and over again in the Old Testament, but stand back. Stand back. I'm holy. And the tabernacle ultimately is a temporary fix at best. There's still so much distance. And even later when Solomon builds a beautiful temple, one location for people to meet with God, it still sacrifices day after day. It's still only the priests they get to enter. But at least God's people could meet with God there. So you can imagine how horrifying it was for the people of Israel to have the temple destroyed, to be sent out of the land. You know what they're thinking, how do we meet with God now? How can we meet with God? And so when they come back from exile, they they build another temple, but there's an interesting detail in that building, or I should say a lack of detail. When the tabernacle is built, the glory fills it. When the temple of Solomon is built, the glory fills it. When the second temple is built after exile, no glory is recorded to fill it. It's almost like God is saying, actually, I'm about to build something better than this physical building. This was just a temporary fix, a pointer. I'm going to build a different kind of temple. And suddenly the words in John 1.14 ring out so powerfully. And the word, that is Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. And that word dwell could have also been translated pitched a tent, tabernacled among us. And suddenly you see but Jesus, He's the temple, and what does the text say when He shows up on the scene? And we saw the glory, the glory of the as of the Son from the Father. This is the temple filled with glory. It's Jesus. He's the spot where people can meet with God. He's the go-between, and not just the temple, friends but he actually ends up being the one lamb that is slain once for all. So we don't have to keep having sacrifices. So when he comes on the scene, John the Baptist in John one twenty nine says, Behold the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And no one in Israel was thinking cute fluffy lambs on birthday cards. They were thinking, there's the dead man walking. There's the man whose blood will be spilt and poured out so my blood doesn't have to be. That's what a lamb was for the Israelites. They'd been trained for hundreds of years to know what a lamb meant. A lamb and a substitute dying so they didn't have to. And Jesus says, I'll be that lamb. I'll take the death penalty so you don't have to. But then on top of that, Jesus is also the perfect high priest. He was perfect. He's not imperfect, And he lives forever. You don't need to keep replacing priest after priest after priest. And he makes a covenant, a new covenant, a new relationship that will last forever through his blood. And so I love the words of the author of Hebrews. He says this in chapter 10. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. The place that only the high priest could enter once a year. Now we can enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We don't need to be sprinkled with the blood of animals. We're sprinkled with the blood of Jesus by faith in him. And we don't get to just come inside the courtyard. We get to come all the way in. We get to draw near to God in a way the Old Testament people never got to. And we, every week, actually eat bread and drink from a cup to celebrate this. So what communion is. We eat and drink to remember that we've been brought into a relationship to be near to God. Do you see the beauty of this? The privilege? Are you drawing near? Are you running to Jesus and finding refuge in him and restored relationships? Maybe for some of you, you feel like, I don't know, I, I don't like this, I don't like this. there's only one way to God through this Jesus. Well, I was thinking about this this morning as I was thinking about a news story. Right now, actually, literally right now, in Thailand, there's a rescue operation happening for 12 boys and their soccer coach trapped in a cave system. And they have to do it now because monsoon rains are about to come and fill up the caves with water, but it's dangerous. It's dangerous. They're sending in divers, and they have to swim through dark and narrow tunnels. They get to the boys, and they're going to give them diving equipment and tether them to a line and pull them back out. And can you imagine if the divers get all the way there and give the boys the diving equipment, and the boys go, you know, could you just rescue us some other way? I don't really like this way. Like, could there be some other way of rescuing me? This one feels a little uncomfortable. I don't really like it. I'd like to be rescued on my own terms. You'd be like, what are you doing? You've got rescue right there. Take it. And yet sometimes with Jesus, we do the same thing. I want rescue on my terms, Jesus. At least there is a rescue. And this rescue brings us all the way back into relationship with God. But maybe you have a hard time believing that because you don't really view yourself as lost in the caves. You don't really see yourself at the foot of the mountain a long way off from a God of storm clouds who will judge you if you don't find refuge in him. But if you do see that, then the beauty of what Jesus did to draw us near is incredible. Wow. He bridged the gap that felt unbridgeable. And not only that, this is amazing," Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3:16. "Do you not know that you, he's right to a church, believers in Jesus, you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Just think about that. Right now,, this, this is the temple. This is where we meet with God. The church, not the building, the people, is a small taste of Eden restored. A small taste of heaven. Do you feel the privilege of that every week when we gather together? That when we gather, we're not just singing a bunch of songs for no purpose, but we together, indwelt by God's Spirit, are meeting with God every week. All of us. No one left outside in the courtyard. That as we gather in city groups and spend time under God's word together and praying together that we are meeting with God. Just just stop for a moment, just look around. Because just like the temple is made of ordinary objects, ordinary materials, we are all a bunch of ordinary people. Messed up people too. And yet, because of God's spirit, because of what Jesus has done, we are the meeting place of God with people. That is an amazing privilege. And do you see now why Paul says, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Doesn't that change how we think about one another? Loving one another, serving one another, when we realize the holy God dwells among us now. What a beautiful privilege and call and responsibility. But even this, friends, is just meant to be an appetizer, a small taste of what's to come, what's really, what we're really longing for. is not just to see Jesus' hands and feet here, but to see him face to face. Our ultimate hope is not a physical temple being rebuilt. No, Revelation 21 tells us what our hope is, Our hope is this. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Eden restored. God with his people in a perfect place. Doesn't your heart long for that? In the midst of a world that's broken and divided, the brokenness in our own hearts and lives, and God says, it's coming, what you're longing for in Jesus. But even now, my spirit dwells within you, he says. You're not alone, I'm with you. And so we get to be now Until that day, a small picture to the world of what God's restoration plan looks like, a small taste. We get to be the place where when people walk into our gatherings, whether at this building or another, they say, The Lord God is here in their midst. And they worship. So I think it's good just to finish with these beautiful words from Hebrews chapter 10 again. In light of our call, in light of all that Jesus has done, hear this. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that in all your majesty and purity and holiness that because of what Jesus did we get to draw near. We get to come into your house and live there and be called your children. And So I pray that you would help us to run here. That we would run to Jesus and find sweet relationship with you through him. That we would treasure our times together and lean into the beauty of your spirit work amongst us, meeting with us in your people. And that we would draw others into this restored relationship. For your glory. Amen.